from digitiki.com. No, you've given me the most marvelous idea. I have. What is it we need on this island? A way to get off. Culture. And what's more cultural than music? We'll form our own little symphony orchestra. Welcome to the Quiet Village. Aloha and welcome back for another visit here at the Quiet Village. I'm your host, Digitiki, coming to you direct from digitiki.com in the heart of the Quiet Village. Got my Mai Tai here and I've got a great show lined up for you this time. Later on, I will have Keith Pollock in the hut. Keith is the curator of the Exotica Archives at the University of Arizona in Tucson. In addition to being the curator of the Exotica Archives at the U of A, he's also a professor there and an avid collector of mid-century music from Capitol Records. And believe me, he has an impressive collection of Capitol recordings, including that godfather of Exotica, Les Baxter. But before we get started, I do want to do some shout-outs. I have a few people who sent me some messages uh, in a bottle that washed up on the shore recently. Darren Long sent me a very kind email and followed up with a CD of his own original tunes. Thank you very much, Darren. I really am enjoying that album. Uh, He also sent me a copy of A Ukulele Christmas Uh, which is some great Christmas songs done on uh, solo ukulele. I really appreciate that. Thank you so much. Um, Also, thank you to Soren for some more great tunes. Glad to hear from you. And Bjorn, who is listening on the Canary Islands. Bjorn, you win the Exotic Locale Award for this episode, let me tell you. Bjorn also has a great blog where he reviews both exotica and ambient album releases and if you can uh, you can vi- I'm sorry I'm tongue tied my ties kicking in you can visit at ambient exotica which is all one word dot com and uh, if you recall I played some ambient tunes in the future Zotica episodes a while back so I'm really really digging his blog so you can check that out so without further ado let's crank up the record player and get the tunes rolling and I've decided in honor of our guest Keith Pollock I'm going to do all Capitol Records artists and you'd be surprised there's quite a number of exotica and great Hawaiian music on Capitol Records from the mid-century. So, we're going to get started with the king of them all, Les Baxter, who was a Capitol Records recording artist. Here is some great tunes. I decided to play two, Bird of Paradise and Maracaibo by Les Baxter. Welcome to the Quiet Village, folks. Thank you. 
the song is you of love and youth and spring the music is sweet and the words are true the song is you Starting that set off was Bird of Paradise by Les Baxter. 
from the compilation called The Sound of Tiki, which is a great compilation. And after that, another Les Baxter called Maracaibo, and that was actually taken off of uh, the Exotic Moods compilation from Time Life, which is out of print. But I believe that album is also on the Tambu record as well by Les Baxter. Right after that, we had Ta Tahaula. <laughs> hope I said that right. Uh, from Webley Edwards and Hawaii Calls from the album Hula Island Favorites, of course. Webley Edwards and Hawaii Calls being uh, huge hits on Capitol Records. And, of course, after that we had Tomi Tomi, written by Harry Owens from his album Hula Breeze, also off Capitol. After that, one of my favorites, Charles Mao and his Royal Polynesians. Uh, that was a tune called Tonga Tika, and that was actually from the original Capitol Records album called Polynesia, which has been reissued as a digital download from the master tapes. Only the album title has been changed to Tahiti Matamura, and uh, in the uh, in the Capitol Records LP, it's he's called Charles Mao, uh, Mao U, I guess that's how you say it because there's two U's. Um, but when it was reissued as a digital download, they gave him a less formal name, Charlie. So you can still find that it's great. Uh, and the middle of that set, we had Pearly Shells by none other than Tennessee Ernie Ford. From the Japanese CD compilation Fresca Hawaii, which is also taken from his his uh, Hawaiian album, believe it or not, Tennessee Ernie Ford did a Hawaiian album called Aloha from Tennessee Ernie Ford. Although that's not available on CD, just that one song on the Fresca Hawaii compilation from Japan, and of course one of the Biggies from Capitol Records, Frank Sinatra doing The Song Is You from a wonderful three-CD set called Frank Sinatra, The Capitol Years. And of course, that last song you heard just before I butted in was zippity Doodah" by Johnny Mercer. And Johnny Mercer actually was the founder of Capitol Records. And uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with Johnny Mercer's name, you are familiar with his songs. He wrote, the, just, I, I can't even begin to put a number on it, huge number of songs that were all gigantic hits in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. zippity doo of course, was used in the uh, Disney film that Disney would like to uh, wish would go away called the uh, song of the south which i believe is about the only disney movie that has never been released because of its uh i believe because of its racial overtones but i i did see that as a kid i actually saw the movie in the theater i'm sure i didn't see the original i i, I saw the re re-release of it but i did see it and i had the record album and everything but that was johnny mercer doing zippity doo dah and uh, Johnny Mercer, actually, according to Wikipedia, Johnny Mercer had well over 1,500 songs, uh, l- lyrics. Uh, I'm just going off of the the the, the Wikipedia here. It, just an amazing number of songs. Uh, some great tunes like uh, he did the lyrics to Moon River, Satin Doll, Midnight Sun, uh, Charade. Summer Wind, uh, Traveling Light, he he did Tangerine, you know, Tangerine, uh, Jeepers Creepers, you know, where did you get those peepers? All those great songs, those were all 
Johnny Mercer. Uh, he also wrote Laura for the movie Laura. That wonderful song. A lot of stuff re-recorded by Frank Sinatra. Uh, the Days of Wine and Roses. Uh, you know, just, just an amazing bunch of tunes. And he founded Capitol Records, which went on to be one of the most successful record labels yeah, in music history. So, with that introduction, let's move on to our guest in the hut. We have Keith Pollock, who is the curator uh, and also a professor at the U of A in Tucson, the University of Arizona, and the curator of the Exotica archives. He's also a huge, huge collector of Capitol Records, uh, basically focusing on mid-century uh, artists in the Capitol Records. He has a wonderful, and I mean wonderful, collection. I love looking through his collection. He's also uh, a collector and photographer of He's a collector of vintage 3D photography gear, and he's also a wonderful 3D photographer. He's got a couple of great pictures of me in uh, the Tiki Tea in Los Angeles in fabulous 3D, which I, I just love. He gave me a copy of that. So, without further ado, we welcome Keith Pollock to the Quiet Village. Aloha, Keith. Aloha to you. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm glad to have you, and we, we're just finishing our second or third Mai Tais, I don't remember. Oh, who's counting? Yeah, who, who cares? Keith is the curator, Is that would that be a, an appropriate word, curator? Mm-hmm, yeah, curator. curator. Of the uh, Jazz and Popular Music Archive at the University of Arizona. So tell me about the archive. The, the archive's mission is to preserve the music of mid-20th century Hollywood, and there's a particular focus on the artists who worked at Capitol Records. And you have a, a wonderful Capitol Records collection, by the way. Oh, my, my, my personal collection. Yeah. Yes, your yeah. personal collection. Yeah. Capitol Records had some great, great... We were, In fact, we were just talking about Capitol Records, how the Ultra Lounge series drew from the Capitol vaults, and it's it's both wonderful and frustrating because it's... There's some great stuff there, and those the albums that they pull from for the Ultra Lounge are not available, at least the majority of the albums, I guess. Well, and also some of the artists that they do pull from are from acquired labels, like Liberty. So there's some tracks from Martin Denny and Julie London on those compilations, and those weren't capital artists. So this collection... It's pretty impressive. You've got you've got some Les Baxter archive, mm-hmm. including handwritten scores. Yes, there are some there are some recordings. I think there might might be some some unreleased materials, uh, but mostly from the from the later part of his life. And it, but it's it's primarily manuscripts, so music from his albums, some singles. Uh, some concert material and there's a lot of film scores. I did notice uh, on the website you've got you've got some scans of some of the scores up, which is kind of cool because I think one of them was uh, Sunken Galleon, mm-hmm. and I was playing along with it and reading it. You know, I was like, "Well, there it is." You know, some of the mm-hmm. it, it's really interesting to see the handwritten stuff. How it's it looks so quickly sketched out almost. Yeah, that was a. Frank Comstock orchestration, but Les had uh, a lot of involvement in that that arrangement, and you could see because Les's hand is is 
uh, scribbled in in on parts. Yeah. And it 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 seems that what it seems that Les must have had a bit of a complex about his horrible handwriting, and that's <laughs> that's that is probably why why he had some people occasionally help him out with the Exotica albums. But there are a lot of those the Exotica albums which which he he scrawled out all the all the notes the uh, taboo I believe that mm-hmm. that one that's that's mostly mostly in his hand. How did did you start the archive or were you responsible for starting the archive? It didn't start as an archive proper, but we got we got a couple collections before before I got there in the '90s, early '90s. The Artie Shaw collection arrived. And then there were some other small things that came, Wes Hensel, and then uh, Nelson Riddle in 98. And then I arrived in 99 and started to develop the collections several years after that. And so then, then we acquired Paul West and Joe Stafford, Les Baxter, and... And Robert Drasnan, too. Robert Drasnan, right. And you actually pulled some of the scores from Les Baxter and performed them. Mm-hmm. And actually, if anybody was listening, I, I did a... I did a I mentioned that on the podcast. I think I did a Les Baxter, Robert Dresden, and Ema Sumac episode where that was all I played. It was the three of them, and I mentioned the, the concert. And that was really something to see because for me, it was, it was interesting because I've heard all the recordings before, but to actually see, to see it performed... Mm-hmm. You, or at least me, anyway, I, I could pick out different melodic lines within the music that I hadn't really noticed before from the recording. Mm-hmm. Um, was pretty interesting. Uh, I think you, Simba was one of them. The uh, the harp and piano line was was beautiful, and I and I only remember it from the intro, dun, da, da, dun, da, and that was all I knew of it. But then, but I could actually focus on it live, and I could hear it change and morph, and it was really interesting. So it was really very cool to see it live. like to to pull that off i mean you had a big group up there yeah that was that was one of the first shows that i i did and some of the hardest music that i think (laughs) that (laughs) that some of these these students have ever tried to perform it's 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 really very very adult music and and it's it's hard for for university students to play that type of material uh, so it was it, it was difficult and and it, it had a lot of lot of challenges. There's a performance practice that that Les had that was all his own, and that's the magic about his music is that it was so original that he created something new. Mm-hmm. And so we can't we can't look at something else before or even after uh, as a guidepost. He's he's his music is it stands out alone and and so that presents a lot of problems because he's he's not around we can't ask him any questions right. and and and, <laughs> and the music is so mysterious there are there are certain indications in the music and and you don't you don't necessarily know know the best way to 
to interpret those. It was probably constantly morphing right up until the moment they laid it down on tape, I would imagine. Yes, it, it would have. And that's my impression, is that it, in particularly the, the rhythmic passages would have been uh, constantly changing. Well, if you hear, uh, there's a recording of, of Les performing at the Hollywood Bowl. And I think oh, that's really? that's a that's wow. that, and I think that's the that's the Rosetta Stone for uh, for interpreting <laughs> Les's <laughs> music because because there's uh, there's a few few Exotica pieces on there, and the interpretation is different from the record, and so can uh-huh. can can learn from from that performance what he might have instructed the performers to do uh, in rehearsal. So that's that's the only way it can really really make sense of, of the parts that's very cool live at the hollywood bowl that must it was be 55 is that um just something you've gotten there uh no a a a, a fellow uh, uh collector friend of ours has a copy of it <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, so go go talk to this mutual yeah. friend well yeah that would give you a chance to see because he would have had to have pulled the scores from the record right and then and either retooled them or recreated them. No, he wouldn't have recreated them. But but since they had a, a performance practice, so it's like playing jazz. Uh, there there are ways that that the musicians knew and know how to interpret. How to, uh, notes have to be played a certain way. You have you have a couple eighth notes, um, and in jazz, you know that you, you know that uh, the first eighth note is played long, and the second eighth note is played short. And so mm-hmm. that's 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 something that you're taught in high school yeah. when you see those when you see those when you see those notes. And that's uh, and so and so in Les's music, his musicians uh, obviously understood something something of the same effect when they saw his music. So they. they I and mean, when they would see certain things written down, they knew, well, well, this this is time for us to make something up here, and we, we know what to do, because <laughs> it wasn't all written down. Ah, it's not. It wasn't as formal as it as you might think. Huh? Well, it's it's a mix. Yeah, it's it's like jazz, but it's not. thing about him is he did he's known as you know the guy who wrote quiet village and basically started the the exotica genre i guess before it was coined exotica which um martin denny i think for his album it was coined wasn't it Mm -hmm. i'm not mistaken but but he was doing the tracks although orchestrated not with a combo like denny but um but but Could but be. but Martin, Martin Denny was the first one to put exotica. Exotica, yes. You got to put the A on the end. That's that does it all. But um, but Baxter did a whole lot more than just exotica. He did some. He did a whole huge catalog of easy listening and arranging and whatnot for Capitol. Right? Are you talking about the singles? Well, I, I well I'm just talking about you know even even some of his albums. Mm-hmm. They're not all exotica. If you listen to them, like. Uh, uh, Kaleidoscope? 
and even uh, uh, what's the one with the killer cover? I'm thinking of this. Uh, oh, space escapades. Space escapades. It's not really exotica. It's more like yeah. it's like like space exotica. Yeah, but it's it's still got that cool kind of loungy '60s, easy listening tinge to it. You know, it's not it's not so deep into exotica. But he's the guy who did that, uh, who who started that genre with all those album titles and and songs named after exotic places. Uh, well, the, well, the the practice of 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 conjuring up uh, exotic places and uh, doing these Im- impressionistic tone poems of, of faraway lands. That's uh, that, I mean that thing goes that goes back much further than the fifties. But the idea of doing it in a programmatic sense on an album that that's definitely that definitely starts with Baxter. One interesting thing I thought was very cool that you guys did when you did the, the live performance is you did some tracks from, um, I, and forgive me, I forget the name of the album, but it's actually the score to a lost movie, right? It was like a Mexican film. Oh, the Sacred Idol. Sacred Idol, that was it, yeah. And yeah. that was that was really hard. I was really surprised that that was uh, the score to a movie uh-huh. that was never released. Our friend who has everything, darn him. Um, he he was saying how it was, uh, I guess, all prints have been destroyed and nobody knows what the movie was like. Or, or yeah, there's a lot of conflicting information uh, out there in the on the web, so I don't, <laughs> yeah, I don't entirely understand the whole story. Now, uh, you also have Robert Drasden in in the collection too. Oh, oh, but uh, I. I should also add about Les Baxter is that there's there's a lot of material in there that that uh, has never been released on record, and at In Capitals Vaults there's a number of unreleased Les Baxter Exotica albums, full albums. Apparently so. Really? I, I think there's two albums, uh, two unreleased Exotica albums, and then there's other. There are other pieces as well. So, like the, uh, I believe the the jungle jazz mm-hmm. and African jazz albums. Oh yeah. There, there, there are, there are tracks uh, that were written for those albums that were never released. Oh. And there are alternate versions of some of those songs. Really? Do you have recordings, or is it the scores? Uh, well, we have we have scores for some of those, mm-hmm. and and know from Capitol's logs. That there's even uh, even more things that are, are extant. That's that's interesting. Any plans to do a concert of unreleased Baxter? Oh, I'd love <laughs> I, I'd love to, but it's hard to find the players. Yeah, that's really tough. You had a huge orchestra up there. It was a lot of people. Mm-hmm. 
And even then, it was uh, you didn't have the chorus because some of those yeah we didn't have we still didn't even have enough people. We had the, the stage filled with students and and lots of mics, and it still wasn't enough. It's also hard to find uh, choral singers who can who can sing in that style. Mm-hmm. Robert Drasden. Now he he just uh, he just donated a lot of his stuff to the archive, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a few years ago. He was primarily a writer for television, did uh, a few film projects, and then he did some, and he did, well, he did one, he did one album, <laughs> apparently that caught on. Uh, the album. The album, yes. Yes, that is a fantastic album, by the mm-hmm. way. Yeah, he did an awful lot of scores, some of which is actually out, I think. There's like a... A lot of it's been released on CD. Yeah, yeah, yeah for the, the TV shows. Yeah, Man from Uncle. He said he did a couple of Hawaii Five O's, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is very cool. With uh, Robert Drasny, you got, is it scores and recordings, or is it primarily scores? There's a lot of recordings. Really? Yeah, there's, there's tons. Uh, a lot of... Uh, I think they're the uh, copy masters that were made at the sessions. So for for many of the TV projects that that he did, we we have we have recordings of that that music. So hopefully hopefully Bob will, will or well he'll have to give his his blessing. But I don't I don't know how we would go about getting <laughs> releases for that. What some of the future for the for the uh, for the archive? Do you have any future plans? Are there any artists you're trying to cultivate to get into the to the archive certainly uh, if we could expand into uh, into acquiring more artists who worked at capital especially during the 50s and 60s that would be great you know anything else that that also piggybacks on to uh, mid mid 20th century i i for one i'm with you i love the the capital 50s and 60s stuff they just exploded with all this really cool and kooky easy listening stuff and some of that stuff is just priceless and it's Mm -hmm. and it's not available anywhere Mm -hmm. you know it hasn't been released and i don't know if if they digitized the whole album from the tape or if they digitized one piece of it for the for the ultra lounge or not but it it certainly is Mm mouth-watering when you hear one track and it's for me, it's like, gosh, I gotta go find this album because I want to hear what the whole album sounds like. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's not on CD or it's not a, as a download. And well, and Capital had a lot of money as well, so they were willing to take chances. So, like with the uh, the, the mighty accordion band, <laughs> it, it 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 would have been expensive to to get all those accordions together in in one studio. And and today, no one's no one's going to even even want to try because of the the cost involved because they know that they're going to lose money right and who would want to admit to being in a giant accordion band anyway in these days mm-hmm. who knows but 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 capital would if if they're going to get if they're going to get 20 accordions together to play in a studio they're going to make sure that they they do it right and do <laughs> it well complete with a gorilla on the yeah. cover even even in getting the gorilla
So yeah, tell tell me more about the archive. Tell me more about what you're doing with the archive and uh, any cool little facts that we don't know. Any unreleased? Well, there's a lot of unreleased uh, materials in there, in uh, the, in all the the various collections. Um, in the Artie Shaw collection, for one, there's mm. there's a there's a lot of music. There's a ton of charts in there that w- were never recorded. Uh, so th- there you have the the, the greatest uh, most most popular band leader of the swing era, yeah. and and we have we have uh, 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 charts that that were never put down on the disc. nice that that's being that that's being curated and kept especially uh, on the exotica side of course you know the podcast is more geared towards exotica mm-hmm. and that sort of thing but uh, that's an ultra niche and the fact that somebody's actually cataloging it and preserving it mm-hmm. um, well and also also trying to make sure the stuff doesn't just sit in boxes and, and some of it gets out and actually lives uh, and with my group, I try to do that. And of course, uh, there are orchestras around that that perform the, the music on occasion. I have a, a group. I've got a concert coming up in a couple weeks, and playing music from the 1920s, all original um, uh, oh, dance, cool. all original dance charts. So nice. these are these are things that that the the flappers would have danced to mm. in the in the hotels and in uh, and in some of the more glamorous speakeasies. And and actually, some of the the charts that I, I've pulled out, you could, you could, uh, you you could call them uh, predecessors to Exotica. Really? There's there's one one piece I'm playing called the Song of the Sands, and it has that that mystique mm-hmm. that you would associate with Les Baxter in the 1950s, and even a lot of the the harmonies, a lot of the textures. Uh, there's a piece called Kismet that we're also playing. That one's that one's even earlier. So Son, Son of the Sands is from 1929, and Kismet is 1920. Wow! And I I think the I think Isham Jones uh, recorded that at that time. 1920. And and really great music. Yeah. We we just we just nearly fell over after playing it. We couldn't believe how how cool this stuff was. Well, you know, and it's also important that this stuff is not destroyed or, you know, degraded to the point that it's lost. Because, you know, we were just talking about, you You had mentioned the Capitol archives at one point were, were inadvertently thinned out, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. And all of that stuff is, it's lost, it's gone. Yeah. Un- unless the artist may have a a copy somewhere in their closet or their family has a copy somewhere hidden in a closet. But, and then again, who knows what shape it's in, you know, that stuff degrades over time. Yeah. And there are also fires. Like there was a big fire at the universal lot, I believe it was just two years ago. Really? In which the, the archives of um, a number of record labels, all, all the master tapes were destroyed Ugh. and some big ones too, like dot and, ABC oh, Dot had some great stuff. Paramount, I think. I think those oh. those tapes were all destroyed. But I, they 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 claim that 
that they had made transfers of all of it, but that doesn't mean anything. Who knows what type of machine they were using? And... Right. Yeah, that's that to me. That's the I think one of the biggest things is that the stuff is just not lost. I mean, as long as it's there, somebody's got it and somebody's caring for it. it who knows? It could see the light of day. You know. Yeah, and, and we and we have lots of recordings. Uh, Bob Dresden was uh, was was wonderful and and actually paying to have all of his tapes transferred and and done uh, done professionally. Uh, so we have we have high resolution digital copies of of all of of Bob's tapes. I want to talk a little bit about your personal collection because you've got a lot. Of capital, and you—you you said you collect capital, because I—I'd done an episode of Jackie Gleason on the, on the podcast. It was oh. all Jackie Gleason. I didn't even talk through it. I just started it, and just it was all the Jackie Gleason mood music, which is just every single one of those albums is fantastic. The Jackie Gleason albums are are almost considered the the start of the mood genre, right? Well, no, Paul Weston Paul started it, but Paul left the label in 1951 to go to Columbia Records, and Jackie Gleason was a sort of a successor to uh, to Paul Weston. So. This is one thing that I'm not clear on. What was Gleason's role? I mean, was he an arranger or a writer or, or was he just the producer? No, he wasn't the producer and he didn't write any of the material, but he, he, was, a, a, he was a highly cultured man mm-hmm. and he did, I believe, he did conduct the sessions. Oh, he conducted them. And I, I think he might have also selected the material. But the person who did a lot of the writing was Pete King. I know he had Bobby Hackett, a soloist, on a lot of the tracks, mm-hmm. which is, I just love his trumpet in there. And the arrangements are just so milky smooth, you know. Mm-hmm. I've, I've played those records, uh, I, you know, I've had them on, and, and people who just happen to hear it, without fail somebody mm-hmm. stops and goes who is this mm-hmm. because it sounds like you've heard this before on an old movie an old black and white movie what, what, what do you work at playboy is that yeah what are well, you i to wish do? <laughs> <laughs> i wish but um, you, you you uh you wear a smoking jacket at work yes smoking jacket and a fez and uh, i have a wet bar in my office but um you know, and you'd think that a lot of people would be, oh, it's older music, it's easy listening, it's a little more passe. It's be, it's it's sophisticated material. It's very sophisticated, and I'm always struck by how many people are stopped by this, and they listen to it, and they're just, wow, this is great. Who is this? What? And I tell them it's Jackie Gleason, and of course they don't believe me. Mm-hmm. Like, Jackie Gleason? I'm like, yes, this is a Jackie Gleason record. Well, he had a variety show in the 50s, mm-hmm. and so he, he wasn't just known in the 50s as as that guy from the Honeymooners. That's 
Ralph Cramden. Yeah, yeah. He wasn't <laughs> just known as that. He, but he, he was a multifaceted personality. But in in addition to to playing the music from his albums, he would have on the top jazz artists. And so he wasn't just a he wasn't just a a, a comedy uh, man. Which is kind of interesting, because he's known as being Ralph Cramden of the Honeymooners. But yeah, he did so many other things and so many very sophisticated things. Well, I think it was representative of the time period. That was the the culture of the, the 50s. So it was more more acceptable to, to have on uh, some sophisticate on, on television, uh, leading an orchestra and... Do you do you, you have pretty much everything Capitals put out? Oh gosh, no, no. <laughs> I, there's got to there's got to be a limit to it because they <laughs> they they produced uh, well they produced well into the into the aughts of the 21st century and mm-hmm. I, I I'm not gonna I'm not gonna collect all the uh, MC Hammer and <laughs> so uh, you focus on mid century then yeah yeah just the just the post war material yeah so I don't know. I've, Two thousand records or, or so, and and wow. that's still that's that's just a it's, it's seemingly a drop in the bucket. Well, Keith Pollock, thank you for joining us here at the Quiet Village, and aloha. And aloha to you, and thanks a lot for having me. So big mahalos go out to Keith Pollock for visiting us. Want to remind you that you can check out the exotic archives on the U of A's website, and I will have a link up on the website as well as you can click it from your computer if you're looking at iTunes with the um, with ArtView. They have great high-res scans of some of Les Baxter's handwritten scores, including the score to Sunken Galleon, which I actually use as the snippet for the beginning of each episode. So until next time, I'm going to leave you with the most appropriate tune of all, Les Baxter's, the guy who wrote it, Les Baxter's own version of Quiet Village. Until next time, everyone, aloha. Aloha.